Thank you for that time of worship. I have been encouraged, and I hope you have as well. My prayer has been that God would speak through my heart to your heart today, and I trust that he'll do exactly that. It was about this time on Tuesday morning, early in September, 10 years ago. 30 miles from here, I sat in a conference room with the church staff, and we went about our business. Kirk Hatcher, a member of the first graduating class from Truett, a member of our staff, finally answered the phone that kept buzzing. His face changed. He stood up, turned on the television in the corner of the room and said, we have to see this. We saw the aftermath of the first plane that crashed into the tower. And we wept. And we prayed. And we held one another and we began to ask God, what should we do? How can we lead what needs to happen? Before that terrible day was over, we had witnessed the heroic efforts of passengers who risked everything. We saw those who, for the sake of duty, with great courage, ran toward the disaster instead of away from it. We saw a tragic loss. We asked the questions, how could this happen? Whose fault is this? Why would they hate us so much? Who would do something like that? With other leaders throughout the city, we gathered at the convention center there in Temple. And we prayed. It seemed like it lasted forever because all I wanted to do was to get home to my chair and put my wife and my children in my lap and hold them. Eventually, we fell asleep that evening, still weeping, our hearts broken. How could that happen? Who hates us this much? Whose fault is this? We're still looking for those answers, aren't we? Might just be the wrong questions. Those are speculative questions. Those are fault-finding questions. In the text that you heard a moment ago from Luke's Gospel, Jesus is confronted with the same kinds of questions. Short-term questions maybe not as significant as they could be, self-centered questions to be certain. This account is unique to Luke. He's the only one who tells this story. Even the secular historians don't mention the events that Jesus does. It was not remarkable at all that Pilate, vicious and brutal, would have spilled the blood of Galileans there in the temple at the time of sacrifice. He did that fairly regularly. No reason to write that one up. The falling of the tower at Siloam, there at the pool, that killed 18 people, that was an accident. That was not a historic event. 
probably didn't fall on anyone of any significance. But Luke, who had gathered eyewitness accounts, making his way through that part of the world, an outsider struggling to understand the place where Jesus lived, the people that Jesus met, taking those eyewitness accounts and creating his history with a historian's curiosity cannot leave this event out. He foreshadows much that is to come. He's also, as a physician, had the experience of being with people in their suffering, caring for them as they hurt, realizing the futility of much of his training along the way. He wants us to see the perspective of Jesus when men are cruel to one another. He wants us to understand the perspective of Jesus when suffering seems unwarranted and undeserved. Jesus is the Savior for the whole world, as Luke sees him, and as he travels with the Apostle Paul explaining who Jesus is and what Jesus said, it's so helpful to those who listen to find themselves in this story, even as we do today. We can only imagine the questions that were posed to Jesus. What about, what about the tragedy that took place? What about my friend who was killed when Pilate kept sending his troops into the temple? The Galileans weren't the best subjects for Pilate at all. They weren't really even his, but they had a nasty habit of making their way around Samaria, down in Jerusalem to worship. And these Galileans, where the trouble always started, came to Jerusalem and Pilate would often make an example of them. What about the tragedy, they would ask. What about our brothers and sisters from Galilee who suffered as Pilate slaughtered these men while they made sacrifices in the temple of God? It's a picture of human cruelty. Jesus adds to it the disaster in which the tower at Siloam must have fallen. Laws of nature, gravity, put in place by God. Accidents, faulty workmanship, a poor engineer. Jesus doesn't answer their speculative questions. He simply adds to them. He wants them to think farther to go beyond what they have already wondered about. And his response is basically unsettling to us. It's the kind of response that would get you crucified if you weren't careful. Here's how you respond to tragedy. You repent if you know what's good for you. I'm not sure how well that plays at First Baptist Plano. Jesus does not minimize the love of God as he sees this tragedy. He doesn't play down God's power and say that God is limited in any way. He does not deny the nature of evil and its prevalence in the world. In fact, he expands upon what has happened and says that there are all kinds of evil that cause suffering and tragedy. Don't leave them out. It's worse than you think is basically what Jesus says. But he invites them and us to look through the tragedy, to see what God might be doing beyond it, to get his perspective.
What do you do when towers fall? Luke gives us clues to what he's trying to get at. He says, now there were some present at that time. For Luke, those are always telling words. He's trying to help us to see the sequence of events, the context of the situation. But it's even clearer than that. He says, at that time, there were some present who told Jesus. You ever told Jesus anything? Do you think you surprised him with that information? Do you think he's ever had an aha moment? They were proud to tell Jesus of the events that had taken place. Maybe Jesus could do something about this. What prompted it? If you back up just a few verses at the end of chapter 12, you see Jesus confronts the leaders of Judaism and those who had gathered around him, a mixed crowd to be sure, religious professionals as well as the righteous poor, every man, every woman. And he says, you're so good at predicting the weather. But do you know what time it really is in your life? Do you understand God's timing for you? At that time, they told Jesus about what had happened. He goes on and he talks about rabbinical Judaism and those who are in charge in Jerusalem. And he says, you're like that fig tree that Micah describes. You're in the vineyard that God has planted, both symbols for the nation of Israel. He says you have the appearance belonging to God, but you don't have the power that comes with it. You're all leaf and no fruit. It's time after three years for you to bear fruit, and it hasn't happened. Time is running out. The matter was urgent. When towers fall, you probably ought to check the time. We might not think of it because we look at our phones to see what time it is anymore. There was a time when people wore watches. Not as much anymore. In Jesus' day, there were no phones nor watches. One of the ways of telling time was to have a tower. And as that tower would cast a long shadow, you knew the day was either just beginning or just ending. You could mark time by the tower. But when the tower falls, you've got to have a new way of understanding what time it really is. As the tower would cast the shadow, now fallen, Jesus was also at a crossroads in his life. At this point in Luke's story, Jesus has turned his heart toward Jerusalem. He is making his way toward the cross where eventually, after another step of obedience followed by the other step of obedience followed by the next step of obedience, he would eventually come to the place where he would become a Galilean whose blood was mixed with the sacrifice at the hand of Pilate. Can you see where Luke was going with the account that he gives? He would soon be the sacrifice that would meet us in our suffering. Jesus would soon become that servant of God who suffers with all of us, who bears the pain of those who suffered the tsunami, those in Joplin, those in Gerald, those whose homes and lives have been destroyed, those who smell smoke even today. He is present. Once and for all, his blood, the Galilean, would mix with sacrifice at the hand of Pilate. 
Once and for all, he would bear our sin, take our guilt upon himself. By his stripes, we are healed. By his death, we've been saved. When towers fall, I encourage you, ask God, what time is it in my life? It's time to obey. It's time to make sacrifice. It's time to give. It's time to lay down our lives, denying self, taking up our cross every day, and following Jesus. These moments matter. If you've come to this place thinking seminary is a time out for ministry, you've missed it. These moments count. This is not a time to free will, not a time to put it up on blocks, not a time to climb an ivory tower. This is a time to put into practice, to exercise the gifts, to explore your calling. God's people are so gracious. They put it with so much from us. It's that time in your life. Be stretched. Follow Jesus. When towers fall, instead of asking speculative questions, instead of coming up with foolish answers, choose to obey. Go with what you know he has called you to do. Let him be at work in your life. Reminded of the five-year-old on the soccer team that I almost coached. They called me that, but I really wasn't. One little boy finally stands there and he's pulling on my pants leg for five minutes and I finally turn and say, what is it, Nathan? He says, coach, put me in, coach, put me in. Nathan, you've been in for the last 10 minutes. Go after the ball. You're standing on the field. God's time is now. God has a purpose in these moments, in these days, in your ministry. Towers fall, check the time. Towers fall, it's probably a good idea to check the foundations as well. Tower was a sign of security. It was often put at the city wall near a gate. It was where the sentries would be posted. When the tower at Siloam fell, it was a blow to the heart of everyone in Jerusalem. Would we still be protected? Are we still secure? The towers, New York City, meant anything they showed us that we're not nearly as safe as we thought we were. Check your foundation. Where's your shelter? What is it that you're counting on for security? These men were asking, if the temple isn't safe, what is? Jesus said, you think that's bad? Siloam was the tunnel that Hezekiah had dug so that the city could have water even during the siege. And that's where the tower fell. The Jews were facing judgment because of their fruitlessness. The appearance of godliness and denying its power. Not even Siloam's pool was secure. They were taking refuge in the fact that they felt maybe they were less guilty than the Galileans. Is why they had to die. Not much security there. You'll always find someone who's a little bit more guilty. Does it really matter? Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners because they suffered? I tell you, no. Probably wouldn't be polite for me to translate that the way I think he said it. Not only no, but you get the idea. I tell you, Jesus says, Unless you repent, 
you'll perish too. Hmm. The attacks that we experienced 10 years ago against the symbols of our economic strength, against the five-pointed symbol of our military power, the plane that was intended to crash into the White House, the seat of political power. They were carefully planned, gauged for their impact. Those of us in places of religious leadership, we maybe were a little bit chagrined that there was no attack on anything of American religion. Or wasn't there? I don't think there's a greater indictment of American Christianity at all, except that those who sought to do damage struck at what they considered to be our highest held beliefs, our values, our hopes, and our security. When the towers fall, check your foundation. Jesus says there is no safe place. As long as American Christianity is synonymous with Western culture, we'll never reach the Muslim world with the gospel. It's when we deny self, when we take up our crosses every day, when we follow Jesus, when we check God's time in our lives, when we examine the foundation to make sure that we are rooted to the rock. Jesus says there is no safe place except one. Do you see it in the passage? He gives it twice. Unless you repent, you will all perish. We tend to think of repentance the same way we think of minor surgery. It's what other people should have. Repentance, as we think of it, is what those other folks should do so they can be like us. Jesus said, unless you repent, unless you repent. We sometimes confuse repentance, what Jesus says, turn, with feeling sorry, feeling badly. We don't like that. Sometimes we confuse it with wishing that we hadn't messed up which is really wishing we'd not been caught messing up, hoping that something different might happen. Maybe we can just change our attitudes and think differently, but that's not enough. When towers fall, Jesus says it's an opportunity, it's a calling, it's a mandate to change direction, to pivot, to turn and go the other way. Check your direction, he said. We don't often think of it, but a tower in that day was often a way of finding your way home. It was a directional marker for those who had wandered, those who were lost. The tower at Siloam, perhaps, for those who are making their way over the Mount of Olives to see which way they need to turn when they get to the crest of the hill. Towers fall. It's time to find new bearings. The things we might have been using to mark our path have changed. The things we've been counting on are no longer in place. It was about five years ago that we took a group of young people to New York City to serve in ministry in ways that were going to stretch them and hopefully accomplish something for the kingdom. We stayed at a 
school called Pratt Institute and dormitories. It was glorious. We made our way throughout the city on the metro, the subway train system. None of us really knew much about it. We would leave Pratt Institute early in the morning. The group would walk together to the metro stop. We would take one train to a turning place, and then we would go different directions. And the groups would divide. One going to Brooklyn, the other going to Hell's Kitchen. My son, who was going to turn 18 that week, was in the other group. And we would remark after we finally got back to the dorms at night, can you imagine anyone ever sleeping on the New York City metro train? Went like this. It was not an easy ride. You never knew who was around you. There were strange people. You were in a strange place. and You never knew where the train might be going. You never wanted to miss your stop. That was Sunday night. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, we became a little bit more appreciative of the folks who could fall asleep on the metro because we needed every wink of sleep we could get. Thursday was Colin's birthday. He turned 18. Going with the other group, the adult sponsors who were there with them, he had his guitar strapped on his back with the head of the guitar and the keys sticking out. And he'd fallen asleep. Before they got to Hell's Kitchen, Doug, our minister of music, got off the train at the stop. They were sleepwalking. They'd done it five times in five days. Everybody knew what to do. And as they got off, Doug looked up to watch the top of the guitar heading further down the track. I've lost the preacher's kid. What's going to happen to me? He sat down and he waited. Colin describes what happened. He says, I woke up and looked around and said, those folks left me. Thought about it. I knew that I had to get off the train. I had to cross over and get on the track that was going the other way and look for the same stop where I was supposed to be. He thought about that. He decided that's what he would do. He got off, crossed over, got on the train, heading back the other direction. When he got off the train, I don't know who was happier, Colin, who was so glad that he was no longer lost, or Doug, who was so glad he still had a job. Colin, were you scared at all? No, Dad, I'm 18. I'm not scared of anything. Yeah, just a little. I wasn't where I was supposed to be, and I knew it. I was going away from the people that I knew and the places where I belonged. I was really afraid I was going to miss the whole day of being with those kids and telling them about Jesus. For most of us, repentance is what other people are supposed to do. When towers fall, don't miss the opportunity to turn. Don't miss the opportunity to turn your heart in the right direction. It's not enough just to wake up and realize you're going the wrong way. It's not enough to commiserate with those who are around you. It's 
It's not enough to decide, here's what I've got to do. There's no substitute for doing it. Crossing over, going back, and realizing that they're waiting with open arms. It's the Lord himself. Let's pray together. Father, as our nation mourns the loss of a decade ago, as this week and on this Lord's Day we gather and have a temptation to mix patriotism and the cross, we pray that you would guide us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would forgive our presumption. Help us not to deny your goodness, O oh Father. Help us not to minimize your power. Help us not to miss the reality of evil around us and the urgency of this day. But we ask that as we turn toward you with our whole heart to do exactly what you've called us to do, exactly when you've called us to do it, we pray that you would help us to be fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen.